Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the interesting developments throughout the week was when President Trump informed reporters on Thursday that the USS Boxer, which was operating in the Strait of Hormuz, had shot down an Iranian drone after it had approached and closed within a threatening range. Tensions have been unfolding in the Strait of Hormuz, which provides passage for about one-fifth of the world's oil every day. In recent weeks, it has been suspected that Iran seized a tanker from the UAE and also tried to stop a British vessel. We spoke to Dave Lawler. He's the world news editor for Axios for more details on this drone shootdown. The Pentagon is saying this was a defensive maneuver by the warship, that this drone approached within an unsafe and threatening distance, and so the ship opened fire on it. Uh, but the, the explanation we got from President Trump is that it came close, they shot it, they totally destroyed it, and if they threaten further U.S. personnel, similar results will ensue. Now, I know the details are still early, but we don't know if this drone had uh, any type of firearms on it or if it was just like a surveillance type of drone. I haven't seen any details yet on what exactly this drone's capabilities were. As I mentioned, this has been an ongoing string of increasing tensions with Iran, especially there on the Strait of Hormuz. Everything has kind of been happening there. I think a fifth of the world's oil travels through there every single day. So this is a, a very important location. Tell us what else Iran has been involved with. There's uh, some tankers that have been seized. They tried to seize a UK uh, boat at one point, I think. There's been a lot of stuff going on. Right, exactly. So first, the UK intercepted a ship carrying Iranian oil, they said, to Syria. Essentially, in response for that, Iran, according to the UK, tried to seize a UK vessel and the UK Navy responded and, and prevented that from happening. More recently, we saw a UAE tanker go off the grid as it was traveling through the Strait of Hormuz. Now Iran says they have intercepted a foreign tanker. And so um, they're basically sending a warning that under this maximum pressure situation, they have a lot of capabilities to disrupt the supply of oil coming through the Strait of Hormuz. And um, there continues to be these, ex you know, these escalations in that area as Iran sort of seeks to change the dynamic here, whereby their economy is being strangled, their oil is being kept from being exported. They're trying to essentially force the world to uh, reckon with them. And so they're doing it by by um, these provocations in the Strait. Yeah, this all started with the U.S. backing out of the Iran nuclear deal. And we know that those sanctions have been very punishing on the economy there in Iran. And they want to sell their oil. And they've, according to the AP, said they've threatened to stop oil tankers passing through the Strait if they can't sell their own oil abroad. So this is really where, as you were mentioning, trying to change the dynamic with it. They keep fighting, obviously, for the easing of sanctions. They were trying to work with Europe on some type of new nuclear deal. Has there been any movement on that? Because the last time I heard, they were increasing their uranium enrichment and they were also refining that uranium also past what they should have been doing, according to the Iran nuclear deal. Right. So Iran is basically prodding 
the world on two fronts, right? One is what we just talked about in the Strait of Hormuz. The other one is that they're slowly creeping out of the 2015 nuclear deal. They're breaking some of the limits on, on uranium there. And so that's a warning essentially to the Europeans and the other parties to the deal that if you don't find a way to help our economy and give us the kind of benefits we expected when we signed this deal back in 2015, then we are going to get rid of these limits on our nuclear program and we're going to continue to make life difficult for you. So the Europeans are attempting to mediate. They're trying to get some sort of economic benefit to the Europeans without making their companies subject to U.S. sanctions. It's an incredibly tricky scenario, and we haven't really seen the kind of breakthrough that gives the Iranians confidence that they don't need to take this kind of action. Going back to the action on the Strait of Hormuz, they're saying that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard were their forces were the ones that were seizing these oil tankers and these 12 crew members that they say were smuggling oil. In reference to the drone, does the Iranian Revolutionary Guard control these drones also, or is this the Iran military at large? Right. So the ships, the, the, the small attack vessels that have been interfering in the Strait of Hormuz are affiliated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. I must admit, I don't actually know who controls the drones in Iran. It's not a question I've, I've had to consider before today. Um, so so that's, that's a new one for me. I, I don't actually know the answer to that. I know that the Guard does control the ballistic missiles. You know, I was just wondering if there's a correlation there, but the president is trying to get a coalition of countries to defend the area. Has there been any movement on that? So there's going to be a forum later this year on maritime security in the Gulf. That is really too late for what's happening now. So so they, what they're trying to do, the Pentagon is trying to bring together some allied countries, especially Gulf countries. European countries as well to sort of get some system in place that would allow ships traveling through the strait and through the area to have more confidence that they'll pass through safely. Trump has actually said, look, this oil isn't going to the United States. It's going to Asia. Uh, A lot of it's going to China. And so these countries should be stepping up and making sure that there's maritime security in this area. It's not just a United States concern. And so they're trying to internationalize that effort there have been no official pronouncements so far about a new international plan on that front, but there have been some meetings. Dave Lawler, Axios World News Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the other top stories of the week had to do with El Chapo, the notorious drug kingpin and leader of the Sinaloa cartel. The saga of his criminal career is over for now. He was just sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. Over his 30-year criminal career, he smuggled more than $12 billion worth of drugs and caused the deaths of dozens of people. We spoke to Lisa G. She's a reporter for NBC News Radio Network. For more on where El Chapo will be going, the Alcatraz of the Rockies, and how he reacted when the sentencing came down. He's complaining, Oscar. All right. I heard that. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years this morning in a Brooklyn federal courtroom. He's 62 years old. He was found guilty earlier this year of trafficking illegal drugs into our country, like you said. And so he spoke before his sentencing, and he told the judge that his life behind bars has been miserable. He said that he's been forced to drink unsanitary water. He's been denied access to fresh air and sunlight. He's also complained that his wife hasn't been allowed to visit him, and he hasn't been able to hug his own daughters. So that's what he's complaining about today. 
Well, I mean, but you the, know what, Oscar? Things are going to get worse. Yeah, of course. I mean, the security had to be tight. He has escaped prison twice before, very famously. I think one time in the bottom of a laundry cart, the other time, which was the more outlandish one, he had people dig a tunnel under the prison right through to his cell, and he rode a motorcycle a mile to the other side to get out. So, I mean, if, if he's thinking that he's not going to be under intense security, I mean, I don't know what he's trying to get in there. Well, are you an action-packed movie lover like I am? Oh. You know, you go and see like Spider-Man, Superman, like all these, you know. Of course. And so anyway, the word is that they're going to be sending him to what's known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, a real intense prison in Colorado. It's about 113 miles south of Denver, and they say it's like the maximum of maximum prisons. And so... You know, you go to the movies and you see all these, you know, helicopters and trucks and and fires and explosions. And then I just think in my mind, if he's escaped twice, I just envision this like super movie where like they're he pays someone off and a helicopter flies in and he escapes again. And <laughs> But if you read, you know, that would, uh, that the would rules be of amazing, this prison, yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. This prison in particular houses 450 men that are deemed too dangerous to be held in less secure facilities. Every inmate is kept in solitary confinement for 22 to 23 hours a day, which is kind of what he's been going through right now in New York. So he can only expect much more of the same. Yeah, and his um, attorney said today that he doesn't expect El Chapo to ever see his wife again, ever hug his eight-year-old twin daughters. There are no contact visits are allowed, even with his daughters. And it may be some time until he does head out west. I guess his attorney says they're working on his appeal and they need, you know, uh, 60 days to do that. Some of the other prisoners uh, right now um, in that prison in Denver are the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, uh, Terry Nichols from the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, the shoe bomber Richard Reed, uh, Boston Marathon bomber Zokhar Sarnev. Um, so, you know, there's some heavy-duty criminals behind bars there. You never hear from them again. Right, exactly. What did we learn throughout the whole process of the trial? I think it was lasted about three months long, and we really got a, a look into the inner workings of the Sinaloa cartel. And they, I mean... They went so as far as to employ IT consultants so that they can create this phone network so they can try to talk confidentially. And at the same time, he was spying on members of his inner circle so that he can see what they were up to if they were selling him out and stuff. There's just so much that came out through the process of this trial. You know, it's interesting you say that. And because of that and because it's so high tech and they got away with so much crime that I believe once he's in this heavy security maximum of the max security prisons outside of Denver, I, I believe like he's followed around all the time once he leaves the cell to wherever he has to go. I think um, they have access to religious services, educational programs, at commissary. They can watch TV in their cells, but pretty much there are special restrictions, and they have head counts at least six times a day. So they can't walk around without being escorted. Tell us if you know about the legend of El Chapo, because there's songs made about him in Mexico. He had such a long career doing this, doing all these bad deeds and trafficking drugs all over the place. He's kind of a legendary figure in Mexico and obviously among the, the criminal world also. 
there's something about him, like, you know, take away his name, El Chapo, okay? There's something about his personality that is very intriguing. People want to do things for him. Does he rule by intimidation? Probably. So that's fascinating to me. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but that in itself is fascinating because he's been running this huge network, illegal network, and people are doing things for him. Just think of your a day-to-day job, how hard it is for some bosses to get employees to like, <laughs> could you finish this work on time, please? Right, exactly. Right? And here this is... Um, an illegal network of drugs and billions of money. They also say that they want him to pay back the $12 billion. Where is it going? I don't know, but that's what came out today. Yeah, that's exactly right. $12.6 billion in forfeiture. I'm assuming that would be through uh, various properties and and other things that he owns that would have to be liquidated. But Man, just to just to even get that back is going to be a, a a huge undertaking. Lisa G, anchor and reporter for the NBC News Radio Network. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. Have a uh, great day and stay cool if you can. This past week was also the fifth anniversary of the death of Eric Garner. And we found out that the Justice Department will not bring federal charges against Daniel Pentaleo, the New York City police officer who put Garner in a chokehold that later led to his death. For more on this, we spoke to Carl Takei. He's a senior staff attorney at the ACLU to discuss why there were no charges filed and if there's any other disciplinary action yet to come for Officer Pantaleo. This is after a years-long inquiry into this case that really has divided the country on a lot of different fronts. It's helped spark the Black Lives Matter movement. As we can all recall, back in 2014 when this happened, uh, there was a lot of protests, people in the street, you know, decrying uh, police brutality against this. And we all are very familiar with the video now where the officers uh, got Eric Gardner in a chokehold, took him down to the floor, and he was saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And he later died of an asthma attack as a result of that. Uh, tell us why the Justice Department is not bringing federal charges against the officer, Daniel Pentaleo. Um, well, the Justice Department, it, this is part of a, a longer story of uh, the Justice Department alternately pushing forward and dragging its feet. And and for the last couple of years under the Trump administration, it's been dragging its feet more and more. That finally ended today, the day before the five-year anniversary of Officer Pantaleo killing Eric Garner with the Justice Department saying, actually, we're, we're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to bring any federal charges against Officer Pantaleo. And a lot of this has to do with the quote-unquote chokehold that they put him in. You can see in the video, he goes behind him, kind of jumps up and grabs him, puts his forearm around his neck, and then they take him down to the floor. I think he maintains that he used a takedown maneuver called the seatbelt, but uh, a lot of it has to do with this chokehold. Yeah, and, and that was actually a prohibited form of chokehold uh, that, that was not allowed by NYPD policy at the time, nor is it allowed today. And Officer Pantaleo's defense that he has offered through his attorneys in the internal NYPD disciplinary proceedings is that, as you said, this, uh, this was a seatbelt maneuver, but you know, they're, they're experts who uh, have examined the video and uh, who testified in that disciplinary hearing that this was, in fact, a prohibited chokehold. What is the seatbelt maneuver? What's the difference? It's 
basically about the, the position of the arm around the neck. And, and the key distinction is that a chokehold is uh, something that cuts off the windpipe. That is prohibited in many police departments across the country because of the extreme risks of death that it creates. At the time when the police encountered Eric Garner, he was outside of a storefront. Uh, the officers were going to be arresting him because he was selling loose cigarettes. Uh, I think they refer to them as Lucy's and, you know, they're untaxed. And they said that he was resisting arrest. There was video taken of this. As I said, we've all, a lot of us have seen this video. Did anything come uh, of this in the resisting part and then, you know, using the force to take him down? Well, so the overall context of this is that um, uh, Eric Garner had a number of police encounters in the past, um, and Officer Pantaleo and his colleagues attempted to arrest Garner because of this very, very low-level legal violation. That That is not the kind of situation that ought to result in anybody's death. And in a system that was fair under a set of laws and a set of police practices and culture that didn't encourage this kind of aggressive street-level harassment of people of color by police, Eric Garner would still be alive today uh, because the, the most that would have resulted in the, from, from this interaction would have been probably a, a citation and a summons from to appear in court. New York, the New York Police Department and other police departments around the country have made changes uh, to the way they operate, you know, because as a result of this, anything in particular that they have changed? You know, there are some changes that NYPD has made, but these are really changes around the edges. And, and the larger issue of police officers still harassing people of color in ways that you know, people living in, in more well-off white communities very rarely experience continues to be an issue, not only in New York, but across the country. So, yes, there were some changes to the way that these types of offenses are handled, but the broader issue of police basically being used as a tool to interfere in often very severe ways with the daily lives of people of color it continues to be an issue. Yeah, I think one of the other changes they made was uh, deciding against putting rookie cops in higher crime precincts and then tasking officers with getting to know the people there in the communities. Officer Pantaleo specifically, he's been on desk duty for the past five years. He's That still allowed him to collect a paycheck and a pension. I know they're still waiting to see if there will be any disciplinary action from the New York Police Department specifically. That's up to the commissioner, James P. O'Neill. The family of Eric Garner has felt like they have not gotten justice. Is this the last recourse, just action from uh, the commissioner? That is the, the last form of accountability that the legal system has to offer at this point. And it, it is in the commissioner's hands whether or not Daniel Pantaleo is going to continue to wear an NYPD uniform or not. And all eyes are going to be on the commissioner to see what type of action he takes. Carl Takei, senior staff attorney at the ACLU, focusing on police practices. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.